Good morning, church. Today's scripture is taken from the book of Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. Again, that's Exodus chapter 14, verses 1 through 14. And the word of the Lord reads, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahirath, between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took his 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pi-Hahirath in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Amen. Well, the message of the scriptures is clear. There is but one message that the scripture is giving us. There's one central theme that is running throughout the scriptures, and that is the glory of God in the redemption of the world in general and his people in particular. This is the message of the scriptures. The message of the scriptures is that there is a world that needs to be redeemed. There are people who need to be saved, and God comes to redeem that world, even his people. In every era, in every dispensation of the scriptures, this is the revelation that God has given. And in every episode that you read about in the scripture, this is what is being revealed. God saves his people. And none more so than that deliverance that was wrought by God when he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. The Bible reminds us in Exodus chapter 12 and, and verse 40 that Israel <clears throat> indeed had been in Egypt 430 years. 430 years. And for the vast majority of those years, they had been in slavery. Now, beloved, that is a long time. That is a long time to be in slavery. In in fact, that is as long, if not longer, than any people has ever been in slavery to another people. That's a long time. Their bondage, therefore, being that long, was a great bondage. And consequently, if they were to be delivered from that bondage, 
it would necessarily be a great deliverance. God, as we have seen in our previous lessons, God had wrought a mighty salvation and deliverance on, his, on behalf of his people through the plagues. But God, you do understand, was not just freeing Israel's bodies from Egypt. They've been enslaved a long time, and, and therefore deliverance that God was, had wrought for his people was not just a physical deliverance, but he was delivering them spiritually. He was delivering them whole. He was, there was going to be a complete salvation. And therefore, for that salvation to be complete, there had to be a complete severing, not just of the bodies from Egypt, but there had to be a severing of their hearts from Egypt. There had to be a severing of their hearts so that they were no longer afraid that there would once again be a bondage. And following, following the tenth and final plague, as we saw last time, Pharaoh and the Egyptians were eager for the Israelites to leave. After the Lord had come in judgment and judged the firstborn of all of Egypt and not one household had been left untouched by that Awful plague, the Bible says in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 31 and 32. Then he, Pharaoh, summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, go and serve the Lord. As you have said, take your flocks and your herds. As you have said, and be gone. On your door, out the way a door, you know, throw me a little bone. <laughs> throw me a blessing. But I want you out. We have had enough. And the Bible tells us that they went out, beloved, and they, just, they didn't just go out, but the Bible says, in Exodus 12 and 36, that they went out in full. They went out with favor. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Amen what they asked for? Their neighbors for the silver and for the gold, for the jewelry. And it says, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. They went out with favor and they went out full. Now, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 37, the next verse there in chapter 12, tells us that there were some two to three thousand, I mean, three million people who journeyed out of Egypt that day, depending on how you kind of work the numbers. But anywhere between two and three million people journeyed out of Egypt on that day. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment, I want you to imagine for a moment the sudden exodus of two and a half million people. Let's just round it off to that number. Two and a half million people suddenly leave the state of Georgia. Suddenly leave any state. Two and a half million people. Now I want you to imagine the impact that that many people suddenly leaving an area, a state, everyone, everyone in that state would immediately begin to feel the impact of that. The labor force would suddenly shrink. Communities, whole communities would just disappear. 
Relationships would be torn asunder. There would be a crumbling of the economy. There would be a downturn that would be so massive. Following that final plague, we think of the devastation to the homes as men and women in Egypt lost their children. But it wasn't just the homes that suffered. When those Israelites left Egypt, there became not only a spiritual, but also an economic depression in Egypt. And therefore, when you think about that, Think about the losses that Pharaoh endured in his family. And then think of the political and economic losses of Pharaoh and the nation. Then it is no wonder that Pharaoh would then, once he got a grip of it all, would decide that letting the Israelites go was not a good decision on his part. And even his servants, who at first had counseled him to let them go, now come to him and say, uh, Chief, I think we may have responded hastily. Apparently, greater than the loss of their children was the loss of their economy. Consequently, we see here that Pharaoh still had some fight in him. He still had fight in him. And because Pharaoh still had fight in him, God was not through delivering his people. Salvation would once again come to Israel, and it would be one for the ages. How does the Bible describe our salvation? How does the Bible describe God's deliverance? Well, in one place, it uses the adjective great, right? In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3, it describes our salvation as a great salvation. And there are many reasons, there are many reasons for using this term great to describe our salvation. Uh, uh, salvation is great because sin is great. Salvation is great because you and I are great sinners. Salvation is great because our Savior is great. Salvation is great because the need is great. This morning, as we look at Exodus 14, we again see why. The Bible refers to salvation as great. The Bible wants us to know the greatness of our deliverance. And unpacks it in these 14 verses here in Exodus chapter 14. Our deliverance is great. There's many aspects to it. There's three here in this morning in the text. Our salvation and deliverance is great because the setup is, is great. We see the setup for deliverance. Our salvation and deliverance is great because of the opposition to deliverance. And then our salvation and deliverance is great because of the greatness of the promise that God will deliver. But first, let's look at the setup, right? Let's look at the setup in verses 1 through 3, 14, 1 through 3. Now, you might be tempted. You read this account, and again, as I said before, it is tempting to, to think or to get in our mind that God, in loosing Israel from slavery, 
And that would be it, that God would be through with it. How, however, when they came out of Egypt, God doesn't just lead them straight to the promised land. Right? You might get the idea, okay, God has delivered them from Egypt, and he's promised he's going to take us to the land of our fathers, the land that he promised, and we're going to go straight from Egypt to the promised land. In fact, I know the way. I know the route. You know, I've checked it out. There is a straight way, the least amount of traffic, the, the least amount of time. We know the straight way there. God does something very interesting. He demonstrates a principle that I have found to be true over and over again in my life. Is that God doesn't take the straightest routes. He just doesn't do it, beloved. He rarely does. I wish he would. I wish he would. I I cannot tell you how many times I've looked at my life and I've planned it out and I say, okay, here is the easiest and the straightest way to get to that goal and, and destination. And as I begin to walk, God puts all types of detours in the way. Doesn't mean that he is not interested in me reaching that God-honoring destination. It just means that he has a different way of going about it. It means that he's setting things up. He's setting things up. He's setting things up for his glory. He's setting things up for his worship. He's setting things up so that I would understand that if I get to that destination, it was God who got me there and not me. It was not my planning. It was not my foresight. It was him. He's setting this thing up, beloved. He's setting it up. He's setting it up. And you know how he's setting it up? He knows, okay, okay, Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not finished with Israel. And God said, okay, well, I'm not finished with Pharaoh. You're not finished with my people? I'm not finished with you. I'm not finished with you. And I'm going to set this thing up so that you know and all of Israel know that I am God. So what does he do? He leads Israel down by the Red Sea. Okay. Instead of the quick and easy route to the promised land, God leads them the dangerous way, humanly speaking. Where God led them made no sense. You would not go there. If you were planning the trip, You would not go where they went. Because where they went, they were vulnerable. Where they went, they were exposed. And again, since Pharaoh is still in Egypt, and we've been slaves for so long, there is still in the back of our mind that Pharaoh may change his mind and come and get us, and what then would we do? And so you know where God leads them? Right to the place where those sentiments and thoughts would be aroused. He leads them to the place where they're most vulnerable. He leads them to the place where they're most exposed. He leads them to the place that demonstrates their weaknesses. And if Pharaoh was to come After them, they would be sitting ducks. See where he led them? He led them with the desert on one side, the sea on the other side, and the mountain on the other side. There's a sea on one side. There's a mountain in front of us, and there's a desert over there. There was no way out 
but the way they came in. They were in a cul-de-sac, beloved. <laughs> Two and a half million people in a cul-de-sac of doom. God led them to a difficult spot. That's what God does. You know why? Because difficult spots glorify God. That's what difficult spots do. God likes to deliver greatly. God don't, God doesn't need little bitty things, little bitty deliverance that you can confuse. Well, did God do that? Did I do that? Did mama do that? Did, no, God likes to deliver greatly. I, I wish he didn't sometimes, but that's what he does. He likes to deliver greatly. And therefore, God is setting them up for victory. He is setting them up for his glory. He is setting them up for their good. He is setting them up so that they might know who this God is that they worship. Someone has said that only when it is dark enough can you see the stars. Only when you know, only when you know the depths of your sin will you ever know the greatness of your Savior. And those who know their sin the best also know their Savior the most. That's a difficult spot. You say you want to know Jesus. If you really want to know Jesus, then the Lord will take you down. 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 And down. Because it's there that the Lord delivers Pharaoh's army's coming. They're in this cul-de-sac of doom. And suddenly here comes Pharaoh's army. And beloved, this isn't just no ordinary army. This is one of the greatest armies on the earth. Egypt was a superpower. Sophisticated weaponry. They had weapons of mass destruction. There was no doubt about that. And they were coming. They were coming. They had chariots. Now, now to us, we look at chariots, and they're like they're just these carts with horses on them. Beloved, to them, chariots were like tanks. And when you brought chariots into battle, you changed the course of the battle into your favor immediately. And the Bible says that Pharaoh was coming with over a thousand chariots strong. He had superior soldiers, expertly trained killers. He had a superior force. Israel might have been too and I have million men, women, and children, but they were no match for a well-trained, well-armed military force that was Pharaoh's army. It reminds us, doesn't it? At least it should, that the enemies of God are always formidable. I mean... The enemies of God's people are always formidable people. You read the scriptures and you see this over and over again. Whether it's Gideon against the, the Midianites, whether it's David against Goliath, Daniel against the lions, Meshach, Shadrach, and a 
Abednego against the furnace? God, the enemy of God's people are always formidable. When God's people go into battle, they, they realize that, humanly speaking, the odds are never in their favor. This is what God does. And, beloved, I got news for you. If you go into battle and the odds are in your favor, if God is on your side, he's going to shriek your forces down. So that when you look, the enemy will look greater than you ever could. It's what God does. It's what God does. He makes our enemies appear greater than we are. But then he says, as he said to Jehoshaphat, in St. Chronicles, beginning in chapter 20 and verse 15, on the eve of the battle with the Ammonites and the Moabites, he said, listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. The battle is not yours, but God. God delights, beloved. God delights to put his people in places where our natural resources and our numbers are not enough. It's what he does. And I don't like it. I don't like it. And as I am reading this text and meditating on this, I'm reminded, as much as I don't like it, if I would be patient and if I would look with eyes of faith, I can see, oh, God is just setting this thing up. He's just setting it up. When Jesus was in the garden that night, on the night that he was betrayed, and all those soldiers came to arrest him, and Peter drew his sword and struck one of the soldiers, Jesus told Peter, Peter, put your sword away. I know it looks dark, Peter, but Sunday's coming. You just hold on. You just wait. The battle is not yours. It's the Lord's. I know it looks dark today. But Sunday is coming, beloved. And you just hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Unfortunately, we are much like Israelites. And because we look and we don't like the setup, because, beloved, I'm telling you, that's all it is. It's all it is. I know it's difficult. Where you might be, it's difficult. But listen, God just setting things up. He's just setting it up. He's setting it up to work a mighty deliverance. He's setting it up to work his glory. But I get it. I get it. You don't like the setup. And because you don't like the setup, and because we don't have the faith to trust the Lord in the midst of the setup, and we resist. And we resist. We resist. And then again, this is what makes our deliverance so great because of our deliverance, our resistance to it. And this is what the nation of Israel did. You see that in verses 10 through 12. God's people, God's people found themselves between a rock and a hard place. They found themselves between a great army and a great sea. They were in a pickle. 
and yet this is right where God would have him to be. I want you to fathom that. In a difficult situation, they're between a rock and a hard place. They're in a pickle. And this is right where God wants them to be. In these situations, in these difficult situations, beloved, the greatest enemy is not the Egyptians. The greatest enemy is not without. The greatest enemy is within. And this is what Israel illustrates for us. The greatest enemy is not from outside. It's inside. The greatest enemy in these difficult situations and predicaments is fear and faithlessness. Fear and faithlessness. For you do see in verse 10 that they were afraid. They were afraid. They were afraid. When Pharaoh drew near, says in verse 10, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel, what did they do? They lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. The Lord just unworked these mighty Wonders of bringing them out of Egypt, two and a half million strong, and then just bring them out, but brought them out with favor. Their pockets were full. He brings them to this predicament that they find themselves in, and they look around, and rather than faith, they fear. Faith, fear, beloved, fear is a faith killer. It is a faith killer. Few things in our lives. There are few things in our lives that lead to disobedience any more than fear does. Causes us to disobey God. Causes us to turn away from God. Causes us to walk away from God. Fear of not having enough. And so we sin in getting more. Fear in being left alone or rejected. And so we, get, we begin to walk in disobedience. Fear of being exposed. Fear of losing what we perceive is most dear to us. These elements of fear and many more cause us to walk in disobedience and even to sin because we're afraid. Because we're afraid. And therefore, is there any wonder? Is there any wonder why the most frequently given command in the Bible is simply fear not? Fear not. Do not be afraid. And in order for the Christian this morning, in order for you and for me not to be afraid, then one thing that we must do is that we must stop looking only with the eyes of our head. Notice what the Bible says, that the Israelites looked up and behold, the great enemy that is standing before us. And if we will not be like them and walk in fear, if we would not be walking in fear, then it will be because we cease to look only with the eyes of our head and we would begin to look, as it says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 8, with the eyes of our hearts. The eyes of our hearts. The eyes of faith. 
we would begin to see as God sees. That we would begin to see not the obstacle, but the opportunity for God to magnify and glorify himself in our midst and in our lives. Lord, when was the last time you prayed in the midst of a difficult situation, Lord, this is an opportunity for you to make much of yourself. Lord, this is a chance for me to see your majesty and your glory, for me to give testimony of your greatness in the midst of your people. But that's not how we talk. That's not how the Israelites talk. That's not how the Israelites talk. Because they were afraid, the Bible says, the last of that verse, what did they do? They cried out to the Lord, didn't they? That's what they're supposed to do. That's what they did. They cried out to the Lord. But they didn't cry out in faith. They cried out in complaint. Why me, Lord? Why is this happening? I don't understand. This ain't fair. Rather than crying out in faith, they cried out in complaint, which demonstrated another thing that was wrong. They were angry. Not only were they afraid, but they were angry. You see this in verse 11. And then they said to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Is this the plan? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Now, beloved, is if, 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 if fear is the number one faith killer, then anger is ranking right behind it. Anger is another faith killer, beloved. And the reason anger is a faith killer is because anger causes us to get our eyes off of God and put our eyes on others. Anger causes us to blame. That's what we do. We take our eyes off of what God is doing and we look around to blame some other, somebody else for what they're doing or not doing. And oftentimes, it leads us to accuse those close to us whom God has placed in our midst to help us. Amen. The Israelites blamed Moses. Notice what they said. This is because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die. Israelite, the Israelites blamed Moses. But if they were walking in faith, they would realize that it was not Moses who had led them there. It was God who had led them there. It is God. It was not Moses who worked those mighty miracles in Egypt. It was God. It was not Moses who came and visited that final plague upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. It was God. It is God who has given the, the instructions to go into this cul-de-sac of doom. Because of fear and because of anger, rather than crying out to God in faith, because of their fear and their anger, they point the blame at Moses. At Moses. At Moses. And this is, this is if you think about it, beloved, it's, 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 it's senseless. It makes no sense. But that's what anger does. Anger causes us to grow irrational. And we kind of lose our minds. And we don't think straight. 
many times have you spoken to an angry person and afterwards had an outburst of words or action or emotion? And then you say, what happened? And they say, I don't know. I just saw red. That's what they're doing here. That's what they're doing here. Totally irrational. Totally it makes no sense at all. It's nonsensical. Frederick Douglass, who said it is better to die free than to live a slave. Apparently not so in Israel. They would have rather stayed a slave in Egypt, they say, than to follow God and, if necessary, to die in his presence. Beloved, this is just nonsensical what anger does. And this is why the Bible tells us over and over again, put it away, put it away, put it away. You can't, you can't be angry with your brother or your sister and still say that you're trusting the Lord at the same time. You just can't. You just can't. That's why the Bible tells us to get rid of, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31, get rid of all, all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. Psalms 37, beginning in verse 8, puts it so plain. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed. But those who hope in the Lord... That's the, that's the opposite of that. Rather than being angry, hope in the Lord. Rather than getting into your rage, trust in the Lord. But at last, they didn't, beloved. And because they were fearful and because they were angry, then they again did what we do. Fear and anger causes you to do, causes me to do. They got in the flesh. That's what we do. That's what we do. We start operating in the flesh. Start operating in the flesh. That's what he says in verse 12. You know we told you, didn't we, before we, we told you why you were in Egypt. Isn't this what we said? Isn't this what we said? That's what they said, right? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Excuse me? Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone. Beloved, there is no more fleshly statement you can make to a brother or sister when you are in sin than to tell them to leave you alone. And this is what they do. We told you, leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in this wilderness. They turned, they turned against Moses. They turned against God's leadership. As Brother Allen told us this morning, how soon we forget. How soon we forget what the Lord has done. How soon we forget where he has brought us from. You know, this is an attitude that is far too common 
in the people of God. This attitude of entitlement. That's what this is. This attitude of entitlement. This attitude of entitlement as if nothing bad should happen to me. Nothing difficult should come my way. And if it does, then God is not right. And God is wrong. And therefore, God is not worthy of me following him. Leave me alone. The good news is, beloved, and the amazing news is that your attitude of ingratitude doesn't stop God. This is amazing. Oh, praise the Lord, it doesn't. Praise the Lord, it doesn't. But in fact, let me say this this morning. In fact, it will only enhance his glory once you behold his salvation, knowing how unworthy of it you have been. You do know, you do know that neither Peter's rejection nor Thomas's suspicion kept Jesus from dying for them. In fact, after the fact, it made the cross all the more glorious in their eyes. Because they knew how unworthy of it they And so it was, and so it was with the nation of Israel. So it was, this is the greatness of their deliverance. The greatness of their deliverance is not only has God set it up, but the greatness of their deliverance is that they have been speaking against it. They are in opposition to it. And yet notice that the Lord still promises that he's going to deliver them. He's going to deliver them. This is what makes salvation great, beloved. What makes it great is the greatness of our enemy. And he comes to kill, to steal, and destroy. And that's Pharaoh. He's coming. He's coming to steal. He's coming to kill. He's coming to destroy. But also makes it great is our opposition to it. The hardness of our hearts and our lack of faithfulness. The greatness of this salvation, however, is that even when we are faithless, God remains faithful. He promised to deliver his people out of Egypt, not just out of the land of Egypt, but he's going to deliver them, their hearts, from Pharaoh. He's going to deliver them fully. Following the people's complaints, Moses begins to speak. And beloved, you could argue that this here is Moses' finest hour. This is where he is established as the great leader, prophet of Israel. Pharaoh's army is beating down on him on one hand. And the children of Israel are doubting and blaming him on the other hand. And what does Moses do? Moses drowns out the noise. And he says two words that are key to God working a great deliverance amongst his people. Two words this morning. Moses says... And he says to you and me, and the first one is, open your eyes. 
Open your eyes. Verse 13. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see. Right now, all you've been looking at is the army. But I'm going to show you something. If you would open your eyes, you will see. And what are they going to see? The salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today for the Egyptians whom you see, you will not see again. You open your eyes. The Lord is going to show something. Fear not. Fear not. There's a command. There's a command. Fear not. Stop looking at what you see. Stop looking at only what you see and start trusting what God said. Stop just looking. Stop just looking with the eyes of your head. But pray and sing. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart because I want to see you. I want to see you high and lifted up. I want to see you, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart that I might see you. Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord to show you. Ask the Lord to show you. And in showing you, ask the Lord to open your eyes and pray like Elisha prayed. In 2 Kings chapter 6 and 17, that the Lord might show you that greater, greater is that which is with you than there is against you. If you would just open, not the eyes of your head, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. And let me see. Let me see. Because you do, you do know, beloved, that God desires for you to see. God wants you to see. If we would just look, God wants us to see. If we would just close our eyes for a moment and stop looking around and with the eyes of our heart, look up and behold and remember that greater is he who is with you than he that is in the world. All you got to do is ask him, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. I want to see. I want to see. I want to see. And if you did look And if you did really see, you know what would happen next? What Moses tell Israel to do? You would shut your mouth. You would shut your mouth. And that's what he says in verse 14. Shut your mouth. For the Lord will fight for you. The only thing he wants you to do is to shut up. The only thing he wants you to do is be quiet. The only thing he wants you to do is be silent. The Lord delights, beloved, to show himself strong on behalf of his people. He is not unaware of where you are. He knows you in the cul-de-sac of doom. He knows your predicament. And so you don't need to be down in the cul-de-sac singing Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows. Yes, they do. God knows. He knows where you are. He's led you there. He's brought you there. Therefore, he wants you to stop talking. Stop talking like we don't believe. Stop all the faithless talk. 
Job chapter 2, verse 10. Job's wife came to him and told him to curse God and die. What did Job say? Woman, stop all that faithless talk. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Matthew, I mean Mark chapter 4, when Jesus was asleep on the boat with his disciples and the storm began to rage and they got in a panic and they woke Jesus up and said, teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? What did Jesus do? The Bible says that Jesus woke up, rebuked the wind and rebuked the waves and then he turned to his disciples and he rebuked them. From whence comes all this faithless talk? Verse 40, where is your faith? Stop looking with the eyes of your head. Boys, look with the eyes of your heart. Would you this morning, beloved, see the salvation, the deliverance of the Lord in your life and the Bible says in Psalm 46 and verse 10, what? Be still. Be still. Be still and know that I am God. Be still. Just be still. And that be still means be quiet. The Lord is with you. Be still. Would you behold the wonder of the glory and majesty of our resurrected Christ. And the Bible says to be quiet. Don't be afraid. In Mark chapter 5, when the ruler of the synagogue sends for Jesus because his daughter is, is on the verge of death, and as Jesus is preparing to go to the man's house, he gets interrupted, right? And he gets delayed because he got to deal with this woman with this issue of blood. And after he deals with her ordeal and she is saved, the word comes to him and says, uh, Master Jesus, don't worry about the girl. You're too late. She's dead. Jesus looked at the ruler of the synagogue and he said, don't be afraid. Only believe. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. Only believe. That's it, beloved. That's it. That's all the Lord wants from us this morning. Whatever the predicament, whatever the situation, whatever the trial, however tight that cul-de-sac is in your life, Christ says, only believe. Only believe. Only believe. That's what the saints used to sing when I was growing up. You know, only believe. All things are possible. If you only, only believe. I don't know if you're like me this morning, but you need the Lord to remind you of that. It's just a simple trust and belief in him. Only believe. Whatever, whatever it is, wherever you are, Whatever difficulty, whether it's financial, physical, emotional, spiritual, the Lord has the same word. Don't be afraid. Only believe. Only believe. And you will see the salvation of the Lord. You need to see the Lord this morning. I want to pray for you. You need to see the Lord this morning, and I want to pray for you.
we're going to pray. You can come down. I want you to come down front, and, and I will pray for you, and you pray for me, that we would see the Lord, that we would stop looking with the eyes of our heads, and that we would look with the eyes of our hearts together, that we would stop the faithless talk and believe in God, believe in the God who has delivered us, and to believe in God who has promised to deliver us. And we would believe in God. Would you come? And let's pray. Anyone who wants to pray, you come and we'll pray this morning. Hallelujah. 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 Spirit of the Lord is going to mend some hearts this morning. Spirit of the Lord is going to reorient some minds and some lives. This is what the Lord delights to do. This morning, he's going to open up some eyes and cause us to see things that we didn't think were possible. He will. He's going to give us strength. He's going to give us patience to trust and to wait. He's going to cause us once again to, to confess that he is able. And all we got to do is believe. Let's pray.